Ladies and gentlemen and Corner Kick fam, welcome back. The episodes are coming thick and fast right at your head like a Harry Kane penalty. Uh, you might notice that unlike our last episode, it's me, Nathan Strauss, back in the proverbial driver's seat. And by driver's seat, I mean the $199 office chair that I got from Staples a few years ago in my la room. La. Yeah, I know. I, I really splurged on that one. But I won't um, lie. There was a point in my childhood where did you ever like do back to school shopping with like one of your parents? Oh, of course, we would go to the and Staples on, um, you know, where the Staples on, is. on yeah. uh, exactly. Yeah. And I would always like spend, a, you know, after buying erasers that I would never use and like and folders like that. that were color coded. Yeah. By and subjects. asking for another crappy new backpack, whatever. Yeah, um, I'd spend a lot of time like pining after these like office chairs. Yeah, no, like, I, I mean, look, I will know when I have made it when I can afford like an Ames chair. The only problem is they're like four to five thousand dollars. So for now, I uh, take great solace in knowing that the fact that I splurged a little bit <laughs> on a nicer chair, like it really it, it's an all purpose chair too. Yeah, I play, I play video games in it. I watch sports yeah, in it. Good. I could probably see it, it works it. for any kind of zoom. It works no. for a Twitch stream. It works no, for exactly. Zoom. It um, works for Zencaster, you know, exactly. All the above. And by the way, Twitch and Zencaster, feel free to hit us up for, um, we could be like the, the B tier Fabrizio Romano, like podcast that he does on, on live on Twitch with like, yes, uh, Joe we'll, Romero. Well, but, we'll co-Twitch. I don't know what it would be. I don't use Twitch, but we could co-Twitch stream with Luis Enrique. <laughs> He'll have a little bit more time. Um, yeah, exactly. Days. And, and Kunaguero can join as well. Um, oh. but yes, uh, Nick is traveling to uh the land of kilts he is off to scotland right now so another two-man booth today it is getting to that time where you know people are doing different stuff for like in that pre-holiday season so back with uh the two of us and, and obviously the voice that you just heard uh is that of caleb Rhodes. but i feel like uh you could figure that out if you're a if you're a devotee the one of... the one constant on this podcast it's true he episodes. shows up yeah, he shows up when no one else does. Exactly. Um, I was going to say, though, you said thick and fast, like, you know, Harry Kane's shot at someone's head. I was going to say, or Leandro Paredes blasting the ball into the Dutch, the Dutch uh, bench. bench. <laughs> but we'll yeah. get into that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this was... Uh, so, obviously, the last episode, Nick and Caleb, after flattering me with how they enjoy my hosting, etc., they actually talked about soccer for about 50 minutes and made a number of predictions, almost all of which were wrong. And it was really impressive, actually, just how wrong they were over the course of the we, two we, we days. Got the, of... We got the tightest game correct, though. That is true. You did get the tightest game correct, and then you went 0 for 3 in the other ones. Um, but this is what happens when you don't have the resident contrarian with really bad opinions there to, like, liven it up or push back. But anyways, Friday and Saturday were two of the best days of soccer um, that I can remember in terms of just, like, pure quality uh, in in a World Cup or otherwise, uh, just really four excellent games. I don't think any of these games were let down scale. I think they all really lived up to the hype. Um, maybe after a slightly slow start in uh, in the opener between Brazil and Croatia, everything else I thought was uh, it was really entertaining. Oh, it was it was am amazing two days of soccer, and it was a kind of thing that was like, huh? Like I was like, bring this format to the Champions League. But yeah, we can get onto that in another. I was like, there's so much more drama when it's one game 
they'd have to find a new ground, whatever. But uh, that, we, we can get on that another day. But it was an incredibly entertaining. Each game offered something a little bit different. The Friday slate, obviously, you know, all penalties all the time, but uh, very different journeys to get there. Should we yeah. dive into those games? Yeah, let's do the first game. Let's let's go in order of the games uh, as they were played. And we started off with Brazil, Croatia. Croatia, obviously, finalists in 2018. Brazil, um, well, you might have just heard that ding there. That's Nick saying he's about to take off. So he's joining us in spirit, if you will. But uh, Brazil were, were the favorites, both in terms of the vibes, but also in terms of the odds makers. And Brazil didn't look great. In the first half, uh, Chichi made some, I think, pretty poor substitutions in the second half, taking off Rafinha and Vinicius before the 65-minute mark, uh, and then eventually replacing Richarlison, who uh, would normally have been backed up by Gabriel Jesus. He's obviously out for the next three months, so they brought on the 25-year-old Pedro, who was the uh, leading goal scorer in the Libertadores for Flamengo instead. But this game... Uh, went to extra time. Croatia had some very good chances in the uh, in regular time, and Brazil ended up going up at the death in the first half of extra time with with Neymar breaking the deadlock after a nice little one two with Lucas Paqueta. But then Miroslav Orsic, who has a tendency of just making things happen late on in, in games, um, and somehow is twenty seven year or twenty nine years old, and somehow still at Zagreb, he set up Bruno Petkovic tie it up and once this game was going to penalties i was almost positive that croatia was going to win and they indeed did knocking out a sad brazil side caleb i'm curious what your big takeaways were from this game aside from wow i guess croatia are really good now or so i mean i mean i think croatia have shown that they're just a great tournament team i mean they have a keeper who's playing out of his mind in Lavakovic, who's now won two penalty shootouts on the day. It wasn't like Brazil weren't creating chances. They had 21 shots, 11 on target, and he just made save after save after save. And if rumor is true, um, is on his way to replace an injured um, Manuel Neuer at Bayern. So <laughs> who broke his leg while skiing. While skiing. So um, which, whatever. Um, so I, I think Croatia you know, know how to get it done. They have that midfield three that I think really, you know, dominated against the two of Casemiro and Paqueta. Um, And then I think in a lot of ways, it was a mixture of, you know, Brazil's lack of finishing and then, you know, Tite just making a series of poor decisions, which you highlighted. I think it was tough that Brazil weren't really able to play. I think they're first choice wide back pairings as well, you know, with Militao looking a pretty awkward fit at right back. And then, you know, Danilo, who's obviously right footed um, playing at left back. And he's not, you know, a Cancelo at left back. Um, in fact, he was replaced by Cancelo at Manchester City. And I think the lack of having, you know, a strong overlap option definitely, you know, mitigated um, Brazil's attack. But, you know, it was the moment from Neymar which was more than just a one-two. It was a spectacular goal of, you know, poise, balance, hesitation, not going down when, you know, every, you know, fiber in his body was saying dive for the penalty. Um, But then, (laughs) I I mean, I'm just saying he tied, you know, Pele's record for Brazil. But then in the second half of 
stop or extra time rather, Brazil committed way too many people forward repeatedly um, and just didn't really look like they were trying to shut down shop. And Croatia said, okay, and scored with their, you know, singular shot on target. And then from penalties, um, I thought it was brutal that Rodrigo had to take the first one. Um, I thought it was foolish um, to have Neymar slated for the fifth penalty rather than either the first or maybe the third. Um, we've seen several tournaments now where, you know, the best players or big players like Ronaldo um, don't end up taking a penalty. And I just don't really understand that choice. So I think Brazil kind of, you know, snatched, you know, defeat from the jaws of victory here. But credit to Croatia, who again proved that, you know, they belong at this tournament. Yeah, I think uh, I think Joseph Juranovic has probably been the best defender of this tournament. Him and Guardiol were really good. Uh, and they'll obviously have a big task coming up tomorrow, which we'll talk about in a little bit. But yeah, I, I was. I think a lot of blame has to go to the now departed Chichi, who resigned after the game. Um, none of the substitutes who he brought on did anything to help the team. And frankly, when you're up one nil in with 15 minutes to go, and you bring on Fred, you could just bring on Bremer, or you could bring on Fabinho. To like really lock things or down, Gimaraish, or Gimaraish, who, who hasn't sniff. got yeah, yeah. He, he didn't really he didn't really play at all except for a couple of minutes in the blowout. And I wonder if Brazil actually suffered a little bit from just how good they were against slightly worse teams earlier on in the tournament because like that that one counter attack in like the 116th minute where they had five people going forward, like you're up one nil in extra time of a tournament. They didn't really play like that. I thought Anthony and Rodrigo were both abysmal. I thought they really, really imbalanced the team. And uh, I think Neymar was then pulled out of position a lot as a result of that. And uh, yeah, I think going forward, you should have your best penalty taker go first. But, uh, you know, Luka Modric is a World Cup semifinalist again. I have to think that at this point, if he makes it to another World Cup final, he is firmly entrenched amongst the Rude Hulets, the uh, Edgars, the in the conversation for being a top five midfielder of all time just given uh the longevity and uh ability that he possesses but yeah credit to croatia because they were the first team to hold brazil in any way shape or form and uh they find themselves again amongst the elites of world soccer yeah no i totally agree about that with with modric and you know interesting to see what they can do with this tournament um, going forward, but at this point, I don't think people will be underestimating uh, Croatia. Certainly, Argentina won't. Um, yeah, yeah. So. so that maybe brings us to the the second game of that day, a match between uh, storied rivals going back, you know, half a century, uh, the Netherlands and Argentina. The Dutch, who obviously beat the United States, and Argentina, who uh, didn't look at their best, perhaps against. Australia, although they obviously did go through pretty comfortably, um, the only goal they conceded was an own goal. They This game started off really positively for Argentina. I thought the first half, and really the first 60 minutes or so, was really all Albi Celeste. Um, Nahuel Molina had a really, really good game. He scored the opening goal uh, in the 35th minute, and then Messi scored a penalty in the 73rd minute. And at that point... Just like when Brazil went up 1-0 in extra time in the first game, I was like, this is a two-goal deficit. The Dutch had, the Dutch looked really, really bad. They hardly created anything outside of set pieces. And then, lo and behold, Hoot Weghorst comes on 
And in the 78th minute, he then scores a brace in the next 20 minutes, courtesy of uh, a ridiculous uh, free kick goal that I I think you'll see recreated in FIFA a lot. Um, And that sent the game to extra time. Uh, The Dutch almost won it again in extra time. And uh, then this game went to penalties and the Dutch once again, proving that they cannot uh, score penalties and Argentina go through with a, uh, a very good penalty shootout. But again, pretty bad loss of discipline and also a terribly refereed game by Antonio Mateo Laz. <laughs> like truly, truly one of the worst refereed games I've seen in my entire life. 14 yellows, no reds until the penalty shootout when Dumfries got sent off for shithousing. Um, there was a foul that Messi drew at midfield on Jurian Timber who committed four fouls after picking up a booking. And I was like, this is a stonewall red. You're talking like, about the foul where he just set a moving yes, screen on yes, Messi? Yes, he raised his <laughs> shoulder. And like, like, if you had done that in hockey, you would be like, ah. But like, he was on a yellow and committed three blatant yellow card offenses. It was a really poorly refereed game. Nonetheless, very entertaining, very chaotic. And uh, I think the deserving team advanced when all is said and done. Yeah, I think the deserving team advanced, and I think hopefully they will have, you know, gained something from having to go through this pretty awful experience um, overall. I agree, Laos was a disaster. He was yellow carding people way too early in the game and far too frequently, and he kind of found himself in a bind where it actually, there was like enough people on both teams with yellows that it gave both teams license to keep fouling hard because Laos didn't want to send someone off. Um and he lost control of this game, you know, at at several points, especially sort of towards towards the business end. Um, I liked that, you know, Scaloni watched the U.S. game, right, and was like, oh, I need to play, you know, a wide team with, you know, five at the back, basically, um, or five in the midfield, however you want to say it, to counter the width of the Netherlands. And I think that worked really, really well. And Dumfries and Blind were were pretty neutralized. Um, in this game, in comparison, I liked that Messi actually looked very confident um, taking penalties, which is not something we've seen throughout his career. Um, I think he knew that, you know, Noppert is not the best keeper in the world, but he is still six foot eight. Um, and that poses, you know, certain challenges. Uh, so Messi was on song. And then at the end, it was just like, you know, peak tournament football with the Dutch being able to bring on, you know, two strikers that are, you know, six foot and above facing off against, you know, a defense that has, you know, how tall is, is Lissandro Martinez? Is he five? He's, he's like five, nine, five, maybe. nine, but he's like a short five, nine, you know, like he's, he's five, listed, nine. He's, he's, shoes. Listed, he's listed as um, five, 10, but I don't think. That's okay. True. That's there's no giving his Argentine haircut, maybe a little bit of the better. They're, they're the measuring him when he's wearing like cleats on cement, you know, exactly. like he gets so. I mean, it was uh, it was kind of hilarious seeing you know Woot Weghorst going for a header against Lissandra Martinez. I mean, uh, Martinez was doing I think his best Mascherano impression, but he is no um, Mascherano by no fault of his own. Mascherano is just you know a great, um, an all time great I think. Uh, but then, you know, Argentina I think in general had the better go of things in uh, extra time, where you know the Dutch were now super unbalanced by having these you know lumbering attackers. Um, on the field. And I feel a little bad that Enzo Fernandez couldn't have just, you know, sunk it 
um, hitting the base of the post with like the last kick of the game before penalties. But again, Messi had a great penalty in the penalty shootout um, and they looked very confident. And certainly, you know, both teams were quite fired up. I mentioned earlier, Leandro Paredes, um, you know, slamming the ball when the play was dead into the Dutch bench, which cleared the bench. And then Van Dyke basically like toppled him um, over. Uh, and there was a lot of afters, I would say, too, with Messi going up to um, Van Hall and, and Edgar's on the bench and, you know, with his hand giving the like chat sign. And then he also <laughs> stood with hands around both ears. I think Messi is like basking in the moment and he's like he likes being like the bad boy a little bit. Oh, without um, a doubt. No, he is. It's very much an Argentina identity, though. It's not something he ever really had at the club level, you know? Yeah. Oh, not at all. Because I mean, he obviously like I think in the sort of dichotomy of him and Ronaldo is is very much the humble, quiet person. Like even his endorsements are quiet. And did you see the interview clip of him when he's getting interviewed on Argentine TV? after after the game uh weghorst is passing by and messi goes um like vete paca bobo like go over there idiot like get out of here idiot so oh, i was trying to i like, didn't see who it was it was weghorst it was weghorst okay so and apparently the dutch were like also just like talking mad crap like in between each penalty as well and the picture that we sent the picture that's been everywhere is of this argentine team like celebrating right after the final penalty goes in um it's very like Renaissance painting esque, but yeah, Caleb, I think it, I thought it was awesome. Yeah, well, I think and I think there's there's good energy here. I mean, Emmy Martinez again looking fabulous um, in general, but especially you know in penalty shootouts, he's been very clutch uh, for Argentina at several points, um, and he has a pretty good like save record from penalties. It's like in the mid to high thirties, which is well, he's cool. also really tall. Um, which helps. Yeah, but I think you know, compared, he's, like a good, would, he's a good shit houser as well. Like he really no, gets into yeah. his heads. Like I remember when, when you said to Gary Mina um, at, at the Copa America, where whatever. Um, uh, so I think this Argentina team is definitely fired up. Um, in a interview, I think today or yesterday with Nico Tagliafico ahead of the semifinal match against Croatia. You know, he basically said, like, yeah, I know there was a lot of, you know, brawls and stuff in this game. And he's like, I don't really expect that to change uh, going forward. So I think this Argentine team probably is slightly overconsumed by their, like, emotions. But, like, so far, they're kind of getting the job done. Um, so I thought this was a good win overall. And it's the only negative being that they had to play, you know, 40 more minutes basically of soccer than they would have liked to have had Messi play for instance exactly but um well we will preview the Argentina Croatia matchup uh which is going to be the first of the two semifinals after we look at the other two uh quarterfinals starting off with a game that not only made me a ton of money but also made me very happy it was Morocco beating Portugal, eliminating Ronaldo, who once again goes home from a World Cup knockout stage goalless with one of the best performances, one of the best team performances that I have seen uh, in a World Cup knockout match. Uh, Bono was spectacular. A Morocco team that was down two of their top three defenders with injury and starting 
replacements uh, at left back and center back were, they were really, really good. Uh, Sofian Buffal became like, I feel like Morocco more than any other country produces these like five-star skill wingers with like minimal to no end product, but who do just like sick things. Like it goes back like 20 years to like uh, Mbarak Basufa, Adele Tarapt, um, obviously Ziesh on one wing is is sort of more of a cam in in theory, but sort of yeah. fits that vein as well. We'll but just Buffal... remember his goal against City for yeah. Southampton. Um, like yeah, you, you don't need a lot of moments no from these he... players, but when you can pull them out, you know, in World Cup quarterfinals, that's that's a pretty good time to live yeah. up to your best. Yeah, and obviously, so they get a goal right before halftime, courtesy of a Nesri who scored because. Portugal's goalie Diogo Costa acted rashly a little bit more like Diego Costa missed a clearance uh, that he didn't need to come out for and a Nesri put it home. And then Morocco did what they did in their previous game as well and just shut up shop basically. Although this time they were playing with a lead again, I thought Sofian Amrabat was fantastic and Portugal who I think suffered from a little bit of overconfidence after putting six past Switzerland looked totally bereft of ideas and Fernando Santos has since been sacked. So uh, it was a, uh, a great day for Morocco who continue their reconquista of the Iberian peninsula and uh, <laughs> have a chance to keep progressing up towards uh, through the Pyrenees or not through the Pyrenees through the uh, shoot Caleb. What's the mountain range in the North of Spain and the South of France? Is it the Pyrenees? the Pyrenees? Oh, yeah, you're right. Never mind. I was right in the first place. <laughs> Through the Pyrenees um, and to, to, to take back France as well. But yeah, great, great game. Tremendous game. Oh, an, an absolutely tremendous game. A well-deserved, you know, win in a, 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 in a game that was sort of different than the Spain game. You know, Portugal are not as possession-oriented, um, although Morocco still sat deep. You know, they become the first, you know, African country to reach the semifinals in World Cup history. Um, I think they are in many ways at this point almost the home team left in the tournament. Obviously, you know, Morocco is, I think, the most proximate. Um, is uh, Cro- is I mean, Croatia France, further east? France and Croatia are both further east, I would say. Okay. Um, I mean, certainly well, not Argentina, but yeah. Well, so I, I think they are if not geographically, like culturally, culturally, you know, kind of the home team. And I think they've had pretty impressive support and it's been cool to see, you know, all over the world, um, you know, Moroccan expats um, and, and, you know, people of Moroccan descent kind of like celebrating um, in, in the streets, you know, in, in New York in, in Paris, you know, everywhere. So I think that's been cool. And I think they're definitely, you know, the team that in a lot of cases, the world has got behind. Um, I enjoyed that it was, uh, you know, two Sevilla players that really showed out in this game and Nasiri and, and uh, Banu, who, as you mentioned, was spectacular because it's not like Portugal didn't create opportunities. I thought, you know, Jao Felix especially had a few good chances. Um, and if anything, the error here was that I think Fernando Santos got a little bit spooked a little too early in this game. You know, he brought on Cancelo and Ronaldo in the 51st minute. And I'm not sure that really gave you know, the Portuguese attack enough time in the second half to see if they could get anything done. Um, and while Ronaldo had a chance or two, I still am not convinced he really offers, um, you know, all that much against a truly like, you know, packed in defense um, 
like Morocco. And so they were the deserved winners here. And, and much like Croatia, who, of course, they were in the same group as um, in this tournament, are at this point more of a known uh, quantity. And I don't think anyone, um, although if anyone would, it would be the French who underestimated oh, without them. without a doubt, yeah. Uh, but as, as we said before, I we'll, mean, we'll get on to that. I mean, that once. Um, yeah. But yeah. Um, no, I think you're. I think you're spot on. I, I think that you know Gonzalo Ramos had that great game against Switzerland, but again, this Portugal performance just reeked of overconfidence. And I think that there are a lot of personalities in this team, not just Ronaldo, but also Bruno Fernandes, who was Bruno Fernandes and Otavio had two of the most disgraceful dives in this game, and then had the gall to criticize the officiating after the game. When not only did they nearly get a penalty given, they also sent off, the ref also sent off Shadira for what I thought should have been just a yellow card, um, just a one yellow card performance uh, when he came on as a sub. So I don't know. This Portuguese performance was far more arrogant. I thought even more arrogant than the Spain performance. Like I thought Spain were much better against Morocco than this Portugal team is. I don't and, think Spain. I don't think Spain were arrogant. I think Spain just like truly lacked someone. No, to no, I agree. Score. No, I, I think agree. Portugal were arrogant. They were like, oh, we just oh, they were totally complacent. Yeah, Switzerland, and they were like, honestly, Switzerland. On paper, you could make an argument that like Switzerland looks like a better team than Morocco on paper, right? Well, yeah, um, I mean, certainly, or, or at least that it's like pretty close. Um, and I think they're like, oh, we put six backs past Switzerland. Well, like, what can't we do against Morocco? But clearly they forgot that, you know, even with, you know, players missing and, you know, Sice getting injured in this game, Morocco have only conceded one goal in this tournament and it was, it was a penalty. An own, it was a penalty right? Or an own goal, an own goal, own sorry. Goal, right? Yeah, yeah. So they haven't right. conceded any non-own goals in this tournament. And so they are incredibly difficult. And they, and they had a new manager two months before this tournament started. They got smoked 3 nothing by the United States and then fired their manager yeah. and then basically gave them a, fr a fresh slate. So they're, yeah. they're and then they got Ziyech to come out of retirement, et cetera. No, I, I think the, as like the Bruno Fernandez and Otavia stuff is like super lame. Like they were complaining that the ref was Argentine, right? And yeah. that somehow, you know, the day after and like two rounds from, you know, a potential final, this Argentine ref was trying to throw the game. And I was like, honestly, like they've been, they've been around Ronaldo for too long. Like if anything, they, they are all inhabiting the, like, this is like the Messi versus Ronaldo. Like it is destined. And I'm like, no, just play your game. Pretty, pretty disappointing stuff um, from, from a Portugal team that's been thoroughly infected by the CR7 spirit. It seems who became the joint or maybe the most capped international player for men um, of all time in this game as well. So congrats to him, um, I guess. <laughs> yeah, the the ultimate Peric victory, which is sort of the story of Ronaldo's career or Dude, certainly his 100%, late career. 100%, um, yeah. And it makes me very happy because I really don't like him as a person and I've made that very clear. So um, seeing Yeah, him we're, we're an anti-Ronaldo podcast. No, seeing like, him go we wear our prejudices yeah. very lightly, you know. Here. <laughs> yeah, 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 no, exactly. Um, but yeah, I mean, shout out this Morocco team. They're fun. The spirit of sort of pan-Arabism, I guess, lives on for them. But also, like, they are, I think they've sort of assumed the mantle of the anti-colonial team, I guess. Like, um, you know, half their team is Moroccan uh, by birth, and the other half of their team stretches as far and wide as Montreal, but also with your standard sort of European mix. Um, you know, like like Bono was born in um he was born in montreal 
And uh, they also have, I think, very interestingly, they've been winning with players who are playing in the Moroccan domestic league as well, like um, Adiyat Allah, who was really good at left back, plays for Wydad Casablanca. So I don't know. They sort of buck the trend, I guess, of teams that you expect to see in a World Cup quarterfinal or semifinal. But they will have their biggest challenge yet on Wednesday because we knew they would face the winner of England-France, a battle that goes back thousands of years um, between these two territories. But this time it was the French uh, picking up a rare victory on, well, not rare on the soccer pitch, but rare in the sort of geopolitical sense, a victory, an earned victory uh, over England, who uh, had a chance to tie via Harry Kane, who scored a penalty and missed a penalty, but a great performance for Antoine Griezmann, a banger of a goal from Aurelien Chouameni, and all in all, uh, solid, resolute defending in the last 15 or so minutes lead France to another World Cup semifinal. So 2-1 France the final in this one. And uh, really, I thought this game was probably the most conventional of all of them. This game was the the most... This game had the least chaos, I guess, of, of all the games in this in this round. Oh, 100%. I think, I mean, it ended in 90 minutes, so that um, is, is less chaotic. I think it could have become very chaotic if Kane had scored his second penalty, um, but but he didn't. And, and you know, with that, I think, went a lot of the, the belief and energy. Honestly, England played a better game overall. They had more shots. They had more shots on target. They had more possession. They had better pass accuracy. Um, they just couldn't really, you know, finish at all. And I think if nothing else, this French team gets, you know, the goals that they need. And they're incredibly, you know, lethal. As you mentioned, Griezmann was spectacular, as he's been all tournament, in a slightly more, with you know, withdrawn role. He had two assists on the day, along with, it seemed like, a million tackles. Um, because he is the best tackling forward out there, truly. Um, Mbappe had a pretty quiet day. Um, you know, before the game, there was all this talk about how would Kyle Walker, you know, deal with the threat of Mbappe on the wing. And interestingly, I think Mbappe played in a very mature way, just allowing his sort of gravitational force on the game to do the work to open up a little more space for Griezmann. Like he didn't try to to overplay the ball or force himself into the rhythm, but he just kind of occupied mentally, you know, Jordan Henderson um, and and Kyle Walker on that that left flank. Uh, and then the you know the the uh, Chouameni goal you mentioned was great. The Giroud goal was was also vintage think, Giroud. Vintage Giroud, right? It was vintage Giroud. And then you know I think both of Kane's penalties. The first one, um, I, I, I'm I'm still not quite sure the second one is fully a penalty, but I can see that it is sort of. <laughs> well, <laughs> on first view, I was I, I actually said some very foul words. I said "get up," blank, 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 and then I watched the replay, and basically Theo Hernandez has the ball going over his head. It's like ten feet away from uh, Mason Mount. From Mason Mount. Yeah. And Fear Hernandez shoulder barges right through his chest. It is a stupid foul to commit in the age of no, bar. no. It was it was you stupid. might get away with that in yeah. the in 2010. Yeah. But I thought it was I thought it was clearly a foul on on second look. And I you guys 
we've sort of praised Theo Hernandez for his tournament so far. That was like just incredibly stupid. There was no yeah. need for that foul at all. No, it was it was very dumb in part because like it was way over you know Hernandez's head. It was also way over Mount's head. Like there was no chance it was getting <laughs> to either was, of Mount them. Mount was goal side too. Her, uh, Mount had Hernandez rather had the positioning too. Yeah. Um, and then it was the quickest bar check of all time. Yeah. Um, because the referee took one look, the referee, your boy, um, Wilton, Wilton. Pao, yeah, uh, who, he... who is in the running for, for refing the final, if, if it's to be believed. He's one Ooh, of the Laos was sent home, of course, not because of the uh, the Argentina game, but he he is not in the running to referee the final. But Sim Pao, uh, who is Brazilian, uh, is is still. Um, in the running but you're right it, it was a foul and then i think this was like one of the great moments of soccer psychology um, and there were simply so many layers to this sort of second kane versus yoris um battle obviously the the first layer being the fact that kane had already taken a penalty in this game going to the right side of the goal when you know they showed like a shot map on the screen you know the vast majority of the penalties he takes he hits somewhere to the left side of the goal from his perspective. The second dimension, right, is that Yuris and Kane are club teammates. And who do you think Kane is practicing penalties on? And who do you think Yuris is practicing saving penalties on? It is each other. Um, and so then the question was like, does he go left now because he's gone right? But then Yuris knows that he's going to go, you know, to the left, his right. Um, in the end, I think Harry Kane decided like, no, I'm going to go left. And he was just like, but I know Yuris is also going to go left. And so he's just like, I need to simply like, you know, Memphis Depay this shot. Um, but he just got a little too much, you know, mustard on it and and careened it over the top. And I and I feel bad, um, but such is such well, is life and, so, and such is soccer. Someone tweeted, Harry Kane's career is so sad because he's going to have scored 314 goals and none of them will have mattered at all. Um, but no, it's true. He'll win it, nothing. He might I, not I win a single trophy. That. And I mean, part of that, I mean, most of that is due to club and not country, but yeah, I thought, I um, mean, I feel like it's as much due to country too. Um, yeah, I guess the euros, the euro that, that, that's, that'll be a big regret. Um, I, again, I thought Gareth Southgate, um, did a good job with the lineup until it came to taking off Bukayo Saka, who was really the only consistent attacking threat for England, not just in this game, but also during the whole tournament, he tormented Hernandez uh, and Kunde. Saka was everywhere along the front line, and uh, once he came off, you know, the last after Kane missed the penalty, that was it. Like it was curtains. Uh, England couldn't really create anything. The lack of a uh, a James Ward Prowse to whip in, or even a Trent Alexander Arnold to whip in balls late on, I think really hampered them a little or bit. Or a Trippier. I I was honestly surprised to see, you know, like Raheem Sterling as one of the first subs to go to. Like, I know he's one of the more talented players, but like, I don't know if his headspace was in the right. I was surprised, like, honestly, in a situation like that, like even try, you know, James Madison, they really played, you know, Jordan Henderson quite wide, almost as like a right wing back for much of the game. Um, and he was pretty poor there. And I was like, if you're going to play that role, why not have, you know, Trent there? Or someone like that. So I agree. Southgate did not get this, you know, completely right. And I think he substituted the wrong people and a little too late um, in the game, unfortunately, for England. Yeah. So when all is said and done, England go home, um, you know, in the quarterfinals rather than, um, you know, 
having it come home, if you will. And France, once again, despite all of their injuries, and it is kind of ridiculous that this team is missing four or five key players uh, that would all be starting between Benzema, or if not starting, be the sort of first player off the bench, uh, like Benzema or Nkunku or Hernandez, who tore his ACL in week one, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Pogba, Pogba Pavard. Um, I thought Rabiot has been one of the interesting stories. Yeah, Rabiot. Where we we spent you know more than a few minutes on this podcast, kind of questioning his his talents and certainly his uh, mentality. And I think he has been you know quite a nice pairing with with Chuamani and certainly added a lot of thrust and I think taken on a lot of you know big responsibility in that midfield too for France. So I think credit to all the people that have you know stepped up in this France team to complement, you know, the mainstays um, that are, you know, propelling them to another, you know, consecutive World Cup semifinal. Yes, indeed. And that brings us to the preview portion, I suppose, of the two semifinal matchups. We'll start with the first one, which is Argentina-Croatia. Aside from featuring two of the most iconic kits in world soccer, it also features two players with a long a lot, a lot of experience going up against each other in Messi and Modric. Uh, as we mentioned, Croatia struggled to pass Brazil, but were opportunistic, while Argentina uh, survived, I guess, against the Netherlands as well. Um, for perspective, the odds makers have Argentina as prohibitive favorites in this game, which I think is shocking um, because Croatia have looked uh, undeterred I suppose, this tournament. But Caleb, I'm curious how you see this one shaking out. Yeah, I don't think the odds makers have caught up with like what we've seen on the field. Um, I think Argentina like have to be considered favorites. Uh, but I don't think it's, it's very clear cut um, at all. Obviously, the last time these two teams faced off each other, it was in the group stage of the 2018 World Cup. And in that game... Croatia beat Argentina 3-0. The teams are, you know, pretty different uh, than than, then, except for, you know, a few of the players you've already mentioned, i.e., you know, Messi, you know, Brozovic, um, you know, Otamendi, so even uh, Acuna. So there's some consistency there. I think Argentina are probably going to go back to a 4-3-3 for this game, and I think both teams will be in that 4-3-3, I do think Argentina's midfield matches up, you know, mainly because they have three instead of just two better against um, the Croatia midfield. Um, and I think that will go a long way for them in this game. I also think that there is just like a sheer uh, cosmic energy, you know, coursing through Messi right now. And I think that counts for a lot. If I had to give a prediction, which, you know, which you do I, have to, which, so, which so, I do. So do it. <laughs> do it. Yeah. Once you say that you, you have to, and then also we're on a soccer podcast. So I feel like I'm obligated to, I do think Argentina are going to win this two one um, in regular time. However, I think Croatia are going to score first. Um, both teams have played a lot. They played long, you know, extra time games. Um, but I do think Argentina here match up pretty well, perhaps even better than Brazil, sort of 
tactically. And I think they're a little less naive in general um, in this tournament, given that they've, you know, they've, they've faced some setbacks, i.e., you know, losing to Saudi Arabia in the first game, um, having that late goal in like the 101st minute to, to Weghorst. And I think they've learned um, from that. And experience is, is powerful um, in these tournaments. And I don't think Argentina will enter with the same mentality as Brazil. Yeah, Croatia. I think that's I think that's a good analysis. As much as I want Argentina to win, I just have this feeling that Croatia are gonna somehow eke this one out. I think their midfield is really really good, and I was not impressed with Rodrigo de Paul in the last game. I think he's had a decent tournament overall. I thought he was good against Australia and really good in the group stages after the Saudi Arabia game. But I think there's a possibility that this Croatia team just takes a lot of the tempo and pace out of this game in a way that the Netherlands didn't. Like, I thought the Dutch did try to attack with Gakpo and with Depay. And occasionally, once they brought on Berghuis as well, I thought they they had a, a three-man attack that was pretty good. Um, I think that Croatia will be a little bit more patient, and I just don't know if the space that led to Argentina's first goal, I don't know if that's going to exist. So I am going to pick Croatia to win in extra time one nil that tends to be how they do it yeah as much as i and i'm not just saying this to be contrarian because i would like argentina to win i think you know if messi if if argentina win this world cup messi's trophy cabinet and career is probably complete you know he can he could retire at any given time as the single greatest soccer player of all time this the lack of a World Cup, as which to be clear, before. he already is. Yes. But this no, would make this would make the is. argument, yeah. you know, right. unimpeachable. Right? No, I um, obviously I already think that. But yeah, yeah, I so this this should be a really good game. Um, I'm excited. Uh, and frankly, if any of these four teams win, there's some sort of compelling storyline, which isn't always the case. Like if Croatia were to win the World Cup, uh, you know, Modric becomes a top five or top top ten player of all time, top fifteen player of all time. They become, you know, one of the smallest nations to ever win the World Cup. Argentina, we already talked about. If France win, um, you know, Mbappe becomes probably the heir apparent as like the greatest, the best striker of the generation, et cetera, et cetera. And Morocco, we've talked about as well, sort of the probably the, the Leicester City, the biggest underdogs in a World Cup of all time. But on to the uh, second game, I guess. Yes. As we as we split we split our takes on. Game one, I do not think we're going to split our take on game two. France, Morocco, um, battling for the first time since the mid 1900s. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, we know what we know what Morocco do. We know what France do. I think this game finishes three one, France. Yeah, I tend to agree. Um, France are just they're they're better than. Portugal, right? They're better than Spain. You know, they've beat England. And at some point, I think the injuries and, you know, the suspensions uh, to Morocco will eat into them a little bit because at the end of the day, it's a team that's not, you know, that deep. Um, And while it is definitely a like team spirit and kind of chemistry kind of team, you know, the more you remove players, um, it's not the same ship. Um, yeah, I, I, I would be happy to see Morocco win, obviously. Um, but it's, it's just hard for me 
like like the odds are definitely more accurate in this game than they are in the Argentina Croatia game. I think. Yeah, it's like a, a basically there's a five out of six chance according to the odds makers that France go through. It's like it's three to one for, uh, for uh, Argentina and the other game surprisingly. Yeah. But I guess uh, my one question I have so obviously if if both Croatia and Morocco won. Would it be the first time ever that, you know, two teams that started in the same group would play each other in the final? Ooh, great question. Like, like, would they become the first? I mean, this is the same point, basically. But would they become the first team to ever play each other twice in a single World Cup tournament? I don't think so, because I think the old format, I think the, the old, old format had a sort of round robin. So I think like in the 30s and 40s and 50s. Okay. What what about play. in like the modern format? Yeah, I that... think it, I think it could be in the modern format. Yeah. I wish I knew more of the like bracketology of like the great World Cups, but I just don't because yeah. it's a lot. Um, you know, it's honestly, some, something for us to to honestly search Twitter for, um, pending the results of these yeah. semifinal games. So so we're so we're all we're in agreement that France will be in a second consecutive World Cup final. Whether it's Argentina or Croatia, we will find out tomorrow at. 2 p.m. as the game takes place at the Lusail. Um and the final is on Sunday. Do we care? I think the World Cup should probably I mean I, I don't know how to feel about the the bronze final. I think it's kind of dumb, but you know, I guess it's it's tradition. Like whatever. <laughs> I, I, I never watched that game. No, who would watch that game? Cuz all the teams play their not their scrubs cuz they aren't really scrubs, but they all rotate a lot. Like it's a meaningless trophy. No one is no one is looking at Argentina, Croatia, France, Morocco, and being like, "Yeah, the winner of Morocco, Croatia is the third best team in the world." You know, like it's just a. I guess it's just a point of pride and sort of. It's a very Olympic of them, if you will. But um, yeah, I guess before before we go, uh, I want to send our condolences on the passing of Grant Wall, who was the foremost soccer journalist. Um, in the history of the United States and someone who could have been basically the greatest college basketball writer of all time. And then instead decided to become the uh, greatest soccer writer of all time. Just also a, a great person as well. All of his work really focused on the societal undertones of the game of soccer, including, you know, in this tournament, uh, heavy work criticizing and detailing, uh, the Qatari regime's treatment of migrant workers and including his final piece, including his final piece. And that will sort of, that will certainly be his legacy. Um, but to die at the age of 48 is way too young, very unexpected. Um, the details are still coming out and I don't really want to speculate because there were reports that like there weren't even defibrillators at the stadium, which is just a, like a tremendous oversight. Um, but he becomes, I think another casualty in a world cup where there's already been, um, too many casualties so certainly very sad to hear of his passing and uh it's a it's a big loss for the soccer community especially in advance of a world cup that you know might not have happened if it weren't for his work in in 2026 yeah no for sure i mean he is i think the preeminent in many ways you know american soccer journalist and i think his path to soccer is also you know, so so interesting and inspiring starting as, you know, a college sports writer at Princeton when Bob Bradley, um, who, of course, eventually coached the U.S., was was coached there. So 
I think it was, you know, very much like an American story in soccer. And he really, I think, elevated the sport in the U.S. and, and internationally. Um, and he'll certainly be missed. I will also, you know, highlight that there was another journalist death, actually, um, from a, a Qatari photojournalist um, also died. And so I think this has been a tragic, you know, World Cup in, in a lot of ways. And I think there will be lots of unpacking to do across, you know, several dimensions and several different storylines um, as the tournament continues. And, and of course, after it wraps up um, as well, but certainly, you know, our condolences go out um, to, to Grant Wall's family um, and friends. Indeed. Well, the next time we speak to you will likely be in advance of the world cup final this Sunday. We will see what that matchup will be and how these semifinal games look like starting tomorrow. But as always, Caleb, it has been a pleasure. Until next time, I've been Nathan Strauss. Caleb Rhodes. And we'll see you in the final on the line next time.